Welcome to The Burn Bag. My name is Ryan Rosenthal, here with the Undersecretary of Commerce for Industry and Security, Alan Estevez. Undersecretary Estevez, thank you so much for joining me today. My pleasure. Happy to be here. So you had a great panel this morning about a robust and resilient industrial base, and I want to ask just a few questions about that before we go elsewhere. Um, so there are, of course... more important. <laughs> right. So something super interesting for all of our listeners. Maybe. We'll see. Um, so th- what are the current gaps in fostering a strong ecosystem for uh, an industrial base? And how can commerce and the U.S. government foster a more supportive ecosystem to ensure that America is the leader in its industrial base? So a couple of thoughts there. You know, and, and obviously we're sitting here at the Reagan Forum, which was focused on the defense industrial base yeah. uh, more than the industrial base of the United States at large. But the reality is... We have an incredibly innovation, innovative ecosystem across the spectrum from, you know, tech up the road here, mm-hmm. it's like Valley Tech right here where we're si- sitting around the LA right. area, uh, to, you know, manufacturers like GM and Ford and you know, incredibly innovative companies and the people I was sitting on the panel with, like Lockheed Martin yeah. uh, today. Uh, all of which needs to come together and all of which is important for the economy of the United States. From a defense standpoint, the issue where you get defense industrial base issues is that there's only so much money. So defense buys in kind of like cycles like this. And if the company isn't getting revenue, they're not going to invest in an expanded capacity. Right. So when you start needing that capacity, so if you're giving HIMARS batteries to Ukraine, for example, new HIMARS batteries don't just appear. Yeah. Right. Because there's no requirement for them until suddenly there is. So we need to look at ways to make our, our defense requirements more transparent and flatter, as Dr. LaPlante was talking about on the, on the panel today. Looking broader than that, you know, into the greater economy of the United States. So we have most, you know, the economics are based on consumers, not on smaller defense needs. Uh, and across the industrial base, there's new and there's new production techniques and new production processes that companies need to be investing in to allow themselves to have more agile more fluid production capacity raising their productivity and also being able to shift production much quicker and that really applies not just to the ford gm tesla whoever back to the defense industrial base that's how the industrial base will have more capacity without the demand requirement needed all the time. So there's all sorts of things you need there. Now, let me follow up. Mm-hmm. You need some investment. Right. So things like chips yeah. is investment in the semiconductor ecosystem of the United States. And Europeans are doing something similar. Right? So we need to look at things where we should be investing tax dollars into that. Those tax dollars are magnified because it's not just that investment magnified by uh, local tax uh, authorities, you know, grants and write-offs, and then companies are then able to leverage the market to expand a $2 billion investment into a $40 billion investment, and that's how you get where we're going. So what I was saying on the panel today, talking about my job of impeding our adversaries from using Western technology, which I'm more than happy to do. But that's the defense side. Yeah. We need to play this offensive game as well to increase the productivity of American industry. 
No, it's good for defense and it's good for the nation. So you mentioned playing defense, and of course, commerce and your bureau in particular plays a very important role in ensuring that export controls are sufficient to protect national security. And so how does BIS, with the other kind of executive agencies that are involved in export control, how do you guys strike the right balance in ensuring that we're not protecting all of our technology and then also not allowing companies to export, while also ensuring that national security is protected? It's a, it's a very fine balance, and I'm curious how your administration, how the Biden administration approaches it. You know, I, I personally come from a long background in defense work, you know, national security professional, and I come to my job with that look. So what technologies would we be using for our own defense that our adversaries would also be using for theirs? Sure. And if we're making it here, we shouldn't be providing it to them so that they can build stuff to use against us, mm-hmm. right? So there's a lot, big difference than exporting something to the UK or Australia under AUKUS or any of our allies and friends versus exporting something to China or Russia where we're not really exporting anything to right now. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, let's talk Russia real quick. We in 37 like-minded nations, when Putin uh, started this egregious uh, illegal action in Ukraine, this war in Ukraine, uh, waged terribly upon the Ukrainian people, we put massive export controls on Russia. So I think we have 90 97% by value drop from the U.S. alone, 70% drop globally in chips going to Russia. At the end of the day, Russia cannot reconstitute its military. You cannot make a precision guided weapon without an advanced chip. And they will not be able to get advanced chips. I'm a a realistic person. There's probably one here, one here, through networks. But they're not going to be able to scale production. So that's why they're going to Korea for for shells. It's why they're taking warheads off... uh, cruise missiles, nuclear cruise missiles, and making them into dumb bombs. We're already having an impact. And the longer this goes on, that impact is going to be greater. It's like the anaconda squeezing them. For China, now it's a different set of uh, issues. And of course, we have an intertwinement of the economy with China. But they are an adversarial nation. And so we need to ensure that they're not getting the... Western technology that they are going to use against us. And they have something called military-civil fusion, which says that you know it's all one ecosystem. You can say we have something like that here, except the way that works here is I'd have to give you an RFP. Yep. If you don't want to sell it to me as a government authority, you don't have to. China, they don't have that same level. So we took an assessment of the semiconductor space, you know, the new oil, as people like yeah. to say. Critically important to everything we do, from washing machines to this uh, microphone and sure. laptop in front yeah. of you, to our ability to do podcasts, to your ability to make a precision-guided weapon or a supercomputer or AI technology to suppress your own populace. Yeah. So we decided what the right level was, working with our technology technologists in the government and working with industry, and we decided what our cutoff was at that level. So, you know, 14 nanometers and below for logic chips, 128 and above uh, for certain memory, uh, 16 pitch below for different man memory. Uh, and we linked all that together and we said, okay, you can't, we're not going to sell you the tooling to make those chips. We have certain parameters on the chips that we can't sell, that we don't allow to sell, that are made by American companies. Some of those are fabbed overseas. We stopped 
the fabs overseas by using something called the foreign direct product rule. Yep. It's all very complicated commerce stuff, yep. but essentially says that it's made with U.S. technology. You can't sell it to China without approval from us. So stop chips, stop tooling, stop the components for tooling mm -hmm. going so they can't make their own indigenous tool industry, and then stop U.S. people from working in those fabs. So a U.S. person cannot calibrate the tool needed to make a 7 nanometer uh, so all those things put together are going to impede the Chinese mm -hmm. semiconductor space. They can make all the legacy chips they want. We haven't impeded that. But the highest end, the chips that really mean something is the highest end of weapon systems, the highest end of suppression systems, mm -hmm. we're stopping that. And uh, where did I go with this? Uh, there's so much to unpack here. So just really quickly, with so when we're looking at China versus Russia, of course, the Russian uh, export controls have been very effective and largely is attributed to coordination with allies. Do you see the same sort of coordination or effectiveness with when it comes to China-targeted controls? Is there enough buy-in from our partners and allies to do so? So you know, we already have controls, multilateral controls on certain things for China. What we just did for the chips, we did unilaterally because we view it as a down payment. We mm -hmm. thought that the threat was great enough, but we truly believe our allies yeah. who share our values, share our concerns with Chinese human rights suppression, share our concerns with Chinese military, military modernization, share our concerns over what happened over the Straits in August, mm -hmm. watch what Putin did in Ukraine. So they share our concerns about the threats. And I am uh, very confident that our allies will join us in these multilateral and make these controls multilateral. Well, just one more question before I let you go today, Mr. Undersecretary. So when you're looking at kind of the export controls writ large, I think a lot of people maybe have sort of confusion on what they really do. And we probably should have started this episode by talking about what an export control is. And just for the benefit of our audience, you know, I took an export control law course in law school. And so I know all the intricacies of it. But for someone who may not understand it, who's either you know not in the national security world, not in industry, what is export control and what does it actually do to inhibit the use of our technologies by an adversary? You took the export control course, I didn't. Uh, I'm not the undersecretary. <laughs> <laughs> so here's what an export control does. Yeah. You know, and there's a range of export controls and a range, range of licensing regimes. Uh, and it gets very complex, but different technologies have different controls on them. You know, I have concerns in China with space technologies, quantum and all sorts of other technologies other than just semiconductors. But even like, you know, stuff moving to allies, some stuff has an export control requirement on it. And so it's most focused on countries of concern, adversarial countries, I think the North Koreas, the Iran's, the Russia's, the China's of the world. Uh, and essentially what you're establishing is a licensing regime where if you were going to ship this item, and this item falls within the parameters as we've defined in the Export Administration Regulation, yep. the EAR, yep. which all spells it out, if it fits within that category, you have to come in for a license from us. Mm -hmm. That license has to be approved by an interagency group. Commerce leads that group, but I need my defense counterparts, I need state counterparts, and I need uh, Department of Energy counterparts to all agree on a license, and there's ways to, to work through that. And 
so we can decide to grant the license after people assess, and that's based somewhat on the end user and the country. In China, again, because we just said end users can be blurred, it becomes much harder. So we tend to put more stringent controls on that because I can't control that. The other thing we do in those license, licensing regimes, so you know the chip, the things we just put on, is a presumption of denial. Yep. Signal to industry, don't bother to come in with a license. <laughs> it's not going to be granted. In addition to that, we have something called the entity list, mm -hmm. which people like to call a blacklist. It's not really a blacklist. It is a list of this person, this entity, this company, this end user, uh, as a higher level of licensing requirement than others. It doesn't mean they can't get anything. It depends on how you structure that entity listing. Right? So some of it is presumption of a denial, and some of it is you can get above a certain category that other companies in the world wouldn't even have a licensing regime. So yeah. it's, it, it, it's complicated. If you're in the space, it's not as complicated <laughs> as I might have just made it. People like uh, do this all the time. Uh, but it gives clarity to American and Western companies of what they can and they can't sell at certain levels to certain countries. Yeah, I mean, I encourage people to check out the entity list. It's public. You can check it out. There's a lot of interesting characters that are actually on it. And so it's always, you know, it's updated occasionally. Uh, Undersecretary... It's updated all the time. All the time. Yes, <laughs> yes. All the time it's updated. Um, Undersecretary Estevez, thank you so much for joining us today. We appreciate it. My pleasure. And I hope your audience enjoyed it.